1: mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices message and data rates may apply bank of america and a member fdsc
0: welcome to the history extra podcast fascinating historical conversations from bbc history magazine and bbc history Review. Since the pioneering work of authors like Mary Shelley and H.G. Wells, the science fiction genre has attempted to divine the future, and it's also reflected the hopes and fears of changing eras. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Professor Roger Luckhurst from Birkbeck University of London tackles listener questions and popular internet search queries about the history of all things sci-fi. Putting the questions to Roger was Matt
3: Elton. So, Roger, thank you so much for being with us today. We are going to run through in quite a short amount of time a quite a big subject, which is the history of science fiction and what it tells us, I suppose, about history more generally. Um, As always on these podcasts, we've got some questions from people on social media, some questions from Google searches, some questions of my own to help tie things together. So, um, we're going to get into some really exciting stuff later on, but we need to start with some fairly uh, dry, unfortunately. Although I don't know, they 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 do tell us things. about terminology. We've had a lot of questions in about what is science fiction? What is hard science fiction? There's a meme going around Twitter at the moment about the difference between fantasy and science fiction. I wondered if you could just set up some of those ideas for us.
4: Oh, let's start with the small thing first then. This is, this is entirely uncontroversial and uh, there, there'll be no complaints about this. Um, yeah, so, so there is always what I call border policing this is that kind of sense of, of, of people wanting to put really tight borders around. Say so you know, the big opposition might be science fiction, uh, which is all about science and extrapolation and, and cognitive developments and technology, uh, versus either the gothic, which is irrational, um, dreamlike, uh, all about the unconscious, about our repressed anxieties. Uh, and depending on your view, you know, science fiction is fantastic and rational and the gothic is awful and dreary and you shouldn't go near it um and it's the same with fantasy this is what's happening at the moment is you know on the one hand you have science fiction on the other hand uh you have hobbits and elves and um you know People develop either a passion for elves or, or find them toxic you know, in various ways. And they try and police the borders between these things. Um, so science fiction emerged in the 1920s. And um, initially in America, it was seen as a kind of science literature of engineers. So there was a lot of kind of um, policing of this must be extrapolation from science. Uh, you can't have this. You can't have that. Um, you can have telepathy though, weirdly, because that's science somehow. Um, you know those sorts of th- those sorts of issues, and then they began to kind of define themselves as a serious literature against fantasy, which is myth and and, and dream and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so you get a lot of policing and a lot of uh, angry uh, Twitter storms about about this. So we've had one recently about uh, Tolkien because of the adaptation Rings of Power, uh, and uh, you also have around Margaret Atwood saying that she doesn't write science fiction; she only writes speculative fiction. Uh, and I think it's designed to to kind of generate debate. Uh, and it's fine if it's um, if it forces you to think through what it is that a genre is. Uh, but I think the best position to have, maybe I'm just old, is um, is to relax about those things because I think most fans don't. Police the border in that kind of way, they just you know they watch a horror film, then they go and read Isaac Asimov they don't really see any kind of boundaries between these different things. so I think I, I tend towards a much more relaxed attitude to this, partly because the history of science fiction criticism is all about shouting at what things aren't you know the, you, you cannot be let in or we do not want this stuff, uh, and nevertheless, it's still there, and people still read it, so why don't we obey what the what, what the readers do in fact.
3: So, some of it is about relaxing the policing of these boundaries so that more things are thought of, or we don't need to think about those boundaries so much. I mean, we, we, we there's, it is something that seems to sort of animate people, not necessarily in a negative way. Um, and another question, we've got a question from Liam Keogh here who says, what is considered the first science fiction literature and what themes did it cover? Now, I know this taps into a whole other range of issues. I mean, his question's interesting, though, because what he's asking is what is generally considered to be, which I think is a, maybe a safer thing.
4: Yeah, that is that's right, and I think you, the answer is that there are multiple answers. Um, so, so that I think we need to be aware of that. So, so many people say um, when H.G. Wells wrote uh, the Time Machine and published it, it was called a scientific romance, uh, and then uh, thirty years later in America, um, someone coined the really awkward phrase science fiction. Uh, which became science fiction in 1929. So there you go, quite straightforward naming. But actually, of course, there's a really long prehistory here. And other people go for Mar- uh, Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein, which is 1818. And that certainly is a new kind of Gothic, uh, which is using science and materialism as the kind of basis for its horror. So, you know, generating the spark of life with electricity uh, rather than any supernatural means, uh, those sorts of it, th- those sorts of debates around her so you have a father of science fiction and a mother of science fiction Um, but then if you include utopian literature in this of course uh, Moore's utopia was written in 1516 uh, and there are centuries of people who write and imagine utopias which might be in different spaces so they might be somewhere set somewhere else but they're also often set in a different time so they might be in the future or they might be in the golden age of the past uh, and all the way through, particularly the 18th century, you have lots of people writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of utopias, women-only ones, men-only ones, um, you know, the end of all alienation, delight, and, and so on. Um, so there are lots of multiple kind of origins, and I think that's the best way of thinking about it, uh, is that um, there are many answers to this question, uh, and that's also fine.
3: And, and I think we'll get into um, Shelley and H.G. Wells, who you mentioned there, who were two really powerful and influential figures. I wanted to go back briefly to talk about utopias. And this is an idea that I think we'll come back to a couple of times. What does it tell us that the idea of a utopia or various utopias was so compelling for people in the 18th century?
4: Uh, well, I think it's a it's a kind of an impulse that, that that stays broadly the same all the way through from from the beginning. So someone like Thomas More is uh, he sets up a utopia on an island, uh, utopos, which means no place, uh, but also the good place. So it's a, like a pun, uh, and it's it's quite clearly a, a sort of political statement about uh, what's the hell's wrong with uh, England and what you could do to put it right. You know, in your imagined kind of space, and actually Plato's Republic. Might might be regarded as one of those, except that he banishes all poets and artists. So, you know, a bit tricky. Um, In the 18th century, uh, you have um, a huge eruption of those utopias because I guess we're we're at the beginnings of um, a new economic form capitalism. uh, And that causes uh, some people to kind of, you know, rush ahead in their mercantile adventures. Uh, But clearly there is also a cost to that. There's a change, there's a shift that people find very traumatic. Uh, and so they're trying to imagine alternatives, other kind of ways of, of doing things. Uh, one of my favourite utopianists is um, Charles Fourier, uh, uh, and he formed a whole movement of Fourierism. Uh, and he 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 went through the French Revolution in 1789. Uh, his family lost all of his money. Uh, he had a miserable time uh, as a, as someone who was a merchant and then you know lost his living basically. And he retreated and wrote this whole sequence of very extraordinary books, uh, which was his imagined perfect utopia, which only had sixteen hundred and twenty people in it uh, and uh, lived in this co- collective house and and everyone could combine with everyone else. there was no alienated labor, everyone could have sex with everybody else. It was all lovely in fact, it was so lovely that this would produce a, a wholesale change in the earth. Itself, so that the sea would turn into lemonade that would be drinkable, um, of course. Uh, and this sort of wonderful uh, utopian kind of imagining, and they, uh, even if it's slightly mad, it had a really big influence on things like Marxism and uh, utopian communities in America, all the way through the nineteenth century. So you know, you have these mad dreams that, nevertheless, people t- pick up and run with, and try and explore in various kinds of ways. So, and that's what science fiction does too. You know, it takes our present and sort of nudges some
3: things slightly into the future so it's both informed by and informs historical kind of reality of the past if that makes sense yeah, it does make sense
4: because because what you I think you say so, so none of us know what the future is right so uh, and we don't know from minute to minute but you extrapolate certain things so some people say that science fiction is a literature of extrapolation so you take a device that's just emerged something like a mobile phone uh, and you just nudge it what's it going to be like what's going to do to us uh, in fifty years time because it does change our our brains in fact you know it changes our attention span it changes what we uh, how we can communicate with each other. What's going to happen in 50 years' time if you just extrapolate from that one device forward? So that's quite often a, a, a common way of thinking about science fiction. In other words, it's as much about the present and how we're imagining future than it is about the future, because, of, of course, many of them are wrong. Some of them are sometimes weirdly right, but actually uh, most of the time it's wrong. But that doesn't matter. It's not, it's not about that. It's about how we right now imagine our future or can't imagine a future. You know, so we're full of apocalyptic, doom-laden dystopias at the moment because of climate change and other issues. Um, can we imagine a future? It's really difficult um, in this scenario to imagine a future, but some people nevertheless use science fiction to try Someone like Kim Stanley Robinson uh, says he has a commitment to write utopias because, you know, you need to need to offer solutions to what seem like utterly intractable
3: problems. Something that I think is really interesting is that some of these ideas have proven so powerful and so long-lasting, it can be hard to keep in mind just how long ago they were written. So Sweden Hungary on Twitter was among the many people to ask about Frankenstein, which you've talked about previously. Um Is it right to see gothic literature, which I suppose Frankenstein partly fits, as being the genre from which science fiction emerged?
4: Um, In some respects, yes. So the gothic, um, which uh, people tend to say is um, emerging in the 1760s. So uh, some people say that the first gothic romance is uh, Horace Walpole's uh, the Castle of Otranto, which came out in 1764. Uh, by the time you get to uh, the end of that really major wave, so Mary Shelley's um, Frankenstein is 1818, there is definitely a shift, which I always say is, is about um, a move from the authority of religion. So there's a kind of terror in the early Gothic, of uh, particularly of Catholicism and of priestcraft and Tyranny and and, and superstition, uh, but nevertheless a, a dreaded fear of what's going to happen to the soul. Uh, and in Frankenstein, it's it's all about um, the, the the kind of religious framing of that very scandalously, because um, Mary and Percy Shelley were publicly atheists, which was you know a, a very daring and dramatic um, position to have and, and actually you know it was illegal to publish things on <laughs> the, the, those kinds of topics quite often um, but it's an entirely scientific frame for Frankenstein so, so this is getting together really gruesomely body parts arguing that the spark of life the vitalist spark is electricity. Mary Shelley went to see um, uh, exhibitions of, you know, frogs' legs famously being sparked after, after apparent death. They seem to be alive. And they did lots of gruesome experiments on recently executed prisoners where they would try and spark them to life just after they'd been uh, executed, hanged. Um, and, and, and so that that's a scientific frame. The horrors now are the things that man can do. So the, 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 the kind of subtitle of Frankenstein is a modern Prometheus. Because Prometheus stole the fire from the gods. And here we've got a, a story, the classic story, the Frankenstein science story of um, a scientist who steals the kind of godly power to create life. So it's a totally different paradigm by, by that point. Uh, and that's what begins to, I think, there's a good argument for, for arguing that. The, the authority of science grows and grows and grows in the 19th century, so that by the time you get to H.G. Wells, he is the fir- one of the first people to be trained to teach science in schools and, and, and universities. This hadn't happened before. It's all the authority of the classics and of theology that is being displaced,
3: and Wells is the kind of product of that. But Mary Shelley is the first kind of early flag wave. And Shelley and her work really encapsulate, is it fair to say, a moment of shifting in society between the importance of religion and the importance of science. Does it tell us anything else about that particular moment in time? Uh, it tells, tells us
4: an awful lot, actually. And this is, this is the case of, of, I think, any book that you put in historical context, but particularly Mary and Percy Shelley, who were these um, radicals and dissidents, uh, scandalous figures who were interested in science and uh, medicine and uh, uh, explored different kinds of ways of living so they went into exile because they were so kind of scandalous and it's not just frankenstein because mary shelley went on to write the last man in 1826 which people have been reading very closely in the last two years because it's about a pandemic uh, and it's one of the first last man books in other words you know everyone kind of dies off and you have one one figure and that's an amazing description of the slow spread of a fatal disease from the east uh, and the sort of panic. That happens and the and the emptying out of london it's very spooky to to, to read. It even has a a politician who's a prime minister who is relentlessly optimistic and says fine, it's fine, it won't touch us at all so there's you know reading that you just think this is truly extraordinary actually um that that one of those origins there and it's all scientific right it's all about viruses and medicine and and um, and pandemic it's not a kind of religious basis for
3: that for that vision so moving on to hg wells um gavin griffiths on twitter asks was hg wells the first writer to think of time travel or a time machine
4: (laughs) that's also um that's also a a cause for debate because there is there is a spanish um book that's that's been recently translated which is just a little bit before which which you know some people argue has a has a time machine in it um but the idea of displacement in time um, is is basically a, a narrative trick of quite a lot of fiction, isn't it? So we have flashbacks or we have flash forwards. Um, it, the good stories don't often go in a linear way, but they they, they kind of jump around in time. I think um, one of the really interesting um, points of reference here, which people might be interested in reading, is um, Charles Dickens's short story "The Signal Man," which is a ghost story. It's a Christmas ghost story, uh, and uh, it's about um, uh, uh, a signalman on a railway who keeps seeing a vision of a man flagging um, in in absolute panic, you know, as if to kind of shut down um, what's happening, uh, and to, to, to kind of ruin the ending. He's actually seeing himself in the future, uh, so it's like a it's like a time travel ghost story. So it's, so it's not no longer ghosts of the past. Which is what the Gothic's about, but it's it's a ghost from the future. It's yourself signalling to yourself, and that seems to me like a really critical moment in which people are imagining uh, what effects do the future have on us, not just the past. So I think that's a good point of reference.
3: Um- t- we should talk a little bit about She Wells in some depth, because I think he's one of those figures who is really influential. Um, and there's three books I want to talk about. One is The Time Machine. Um, what does The Time Machine tell us about the Victorian era and I suppose its preoccupations?
4: Yeah, The Time Machine um, by H.G. Wells is so important. So it came out in 1895 uh, and uh, was immediately kind of considered a a work of genius, and and he he was on his way immediately writing an extraordinary sequence of books which were very influential on on science fiction after that. Um, But it is very distinctly a portrait of um, London in the 1890s. So although he travels forward 800,000 years on his machine, um, what he's describing in that future society is uh, a classical division between, you know, the, the, the capitalist workers who live underground are these feral kind of creatures who've devolved back into um, forms of a, repeatedly described as monkeys or as spiders who who kind of live underground. Uh, and then this effete decadent um group of people who live on the surface who seem very benign initially um but actually um are slowly dying out and, and being literally fed on by the Morlocks. and it, it um hg wells was from a lower middle class family he was from trade so he was not a um, not a person of the elite. Um, the literary elite didn't like him at all. He didn't like them very much. Uh, and, uh, he was someone who was writing a kind of literature of the lower middle class, uh, as a science professional, he started out writing textbooks. So, you know, here's someone who is coming from a different locus of knowledge. Uh, but also he has a kind of socialist politics as well at this point, and is sort of saying that the workers in a gruesome way will overthrow, um, that they're oppressors so he's very kind of bound up in that and it's a it's an amazing portrait actually of the decadence of the 1890s um, as well as this uh, sense of the organization of the working class which was so feared at the end of the 19th century mob riots and you know Stones being thrown for heaven's sake at gentlemen's clubs in in Pall Mall, you know, all of that sort of anxiety uh, about the the, about the upper T working classes. So it's it's incredibly bound up in the moment that he wrote, and that's what makes it interesting, I think. So 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 less sort of sense of is this an effective vision of uh, of the future? Well, no, because its vision of the future is 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 bound up with theories in the eighteen nineties about. Decline and degeneration
3: and entropy—it's—it's uh, it's fully a Victorian vision, actually. Does it tell us something about the ways in which science fed into politics and political ideas in that period? Yes, it really does. So, so, so I think
4: one one of the switches. Uh, that happens in the 19th century uh, is the, the building basically of a scientific culture and a set of institutions. So uh, it's only uh, after the Education Act in 1870 that science begins to come into the school curriculum and into the university curriculum. The word scientist isn't used until the 20th century. Uh, although it had been coined in the 1830s, no one was really using it because it's not a profession. No one can can, can do this. Uh, T.H. Huxley, one of the most famous scientists in in the 19th century, uh, basically had to have a subscription so that he could uh, retire because he had no money, he made no money from this. There was no kind of career. He didn't have a private um, stash of cash. So, so, you know, there is no, there is no career. But H.G. Wells is kind of an emblem of the emergence of funded science and of the authority of science, uh, and of the um, emergence in the eighteen nineties, you're getting huge strides in, in in physics, in biology, discovery of you know uh, bacteria and, and viruses and how they work, um, X-rays. Uh, all kinds of new technological advances and it really did feel like it was hurtling forward with science and technology and it's it's wells as training that gives him the ability to in a sense ride that storm and sort of filter it down into narratives that, that are really compelling um whereas other people were really fearful of this you know they, they they would say well i can't cope with the speed of life i mean there are at least four evening newspapers and i get 10 telegrams a day you know what what on earth am i going to do with this my my brain is completely fried i suffer from what they called londonism which was a kind of a disease of overstimulation you know that that, that you can you were going to decline and degenerate and unravel because of the speed of modernity um and 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 i guess you know traffic did go faster in 1895 than it does now so maybe they were suffering from speed (laughs)
3: I mean, that's that's fascinating, particularly if we then think about 1896 is the island of Dr Moreau. Is that also a book about fear of what might happen to society and about what society has already become as well?
4: Yes. So The Island of Dr Moreau, uh, which came out the year after uh, The Time Machine, is, you know, it gives you another branch of um, this crossover between Gothic and uh, science fiction, I think, because it is truly gruesome. It's about a doctor who is in uh, an, on an isolated island, is basically splicing up animals and, 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 and producing new uh, horrific creatures and then trying to educate them, give them language, turn them into um, human beings, give them this kind of sense of, of, of uh, humanity. And, of course, it all goes horrifically wrong and they degenerate back into their animalistic kind of forms. But there's a there's a real kind of sense of glee here about the imagination that Darwin has given uh, to um, the public because, you know, suddenly millions of years in the past, what do we retain from all of that? Uh, ancestry, this biological ancestry, but also what's going to happen in the future, you know, is this Darwin was quite comforting in some ways, he, he was very careful to say that don't worry, the advance is upwards uh, towards perfectibility. Uh, it was very kind of compatible, if you like, with a kind of Benign, um, even even religious sort of conception of we're heading towards perfection, but in the in the late nineteenth century, people were saying, "Hang on a minute! If you can go up the evolutionary chain, you can also slide back down it." And that's what happens, say in Jekyll and Hyde. You know, Jekyll um, keeps taking his mysterious white powder, uh, and he um, he, de- he degenerates back into this kind of animalistic form, and that was a that was a sheer terror. Of um, this theory of degeneration, so not you know advancing, uh, but declining, and was that a portrait of what was going to happen uh, to England? You know, you have a decline and fall narrative. This is the height of the empire, but where else is there to go down? You know, so that's a sense of, uh, of of this is England at its its imperial pomp. But it's full of this terrified imagination that actually we are going to decline and fall. And that sort of haunting is really important in Wells. It's why Wells is constantly arguing for different utopian kind of outcomes. If we stay on this course, he's suggesting, then we will decline. So what we need is is a different organisation of society.
3: And the idea of imperial decline and fall is, I think, also central to War of the Worlds, which I think is 1898. Does that tell us something about the Victorian Empire, the British Empire at this point in history?
4: Yes, it does. I mean, it, it, the, the beginning of the War of the Worlds um, is this um, uh, brilliant opening, you know, so so people can find this on the net immediately. You know, just just read the opening kind of couple of pages because it's this brilliant trick of what science fiction can do so it's kind of saying here we are uh, the the english uh, um, Brit- british empire is at uh, its height we are the most superior creatures on the planet but what if there was an even greater kind of superior kind of power that was looking down at us. What if actually what we'd done to Tasmania, which was, you know, kind of take it over and through accident and design, basically kill off the entire population. Uh, What if Martians arrived and did that... To well the home counties and and london, so there 's like a gleeful portrait of um, all of these towns that the wells had, had kind of lived in and been judged uh, and disapproved of, uh, so he systematically sets about destroying them with lasers because you know he 's got this wonderful vision of destruction of all of these petty minded people uh, very important there 's a priest in there who can 't accept the reality of this uh, overthrow. And then the brilliant um, ending of that book is it's not the British ingenuity or engineers or science that that wins. It's the fact that um, the Martians aren't protected from bacteria uh, that kill them off. So it's nothing to do with with us, uh, nothing to do with humanity. It's to do with um, what to do with. Viruses and disease, and that's a sense of of again another sort of switch, another really satirical subversion of um, British imperial power is uh, what Wells is after at that point. It's a very brilliant book, I think.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: H.G. Uh, Wells predicted an atom bomb uh, in 1914. And he thought it would emerge around about 1945. So that's kind of a fairly amazing kind of sense of of what they were understanding about, you know, the, the projection into the future. You can release this extraordinary energy.
2: Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello.
0: This call is being translated.
1: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
2: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend.
1: Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije.
0: You know what I said.
1: Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
3: And it's interesting that it's not military might that defeats them, but it's science. It's, It's science in its purest form, I suppose yeah or else it's it's it 's biology
4: you know because science doesn 't kind of come into this really i mean the, the 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 defenses that human humanity have against the martians don 't work at all and they might think that they 're at the height of scientific power, but actually it 's the pure fact of biology you know if you come from somewhere else um, then um you 're going to be susceptible to diseases, and this is what happens with Settler colonialism. So you know it's why when you arrive uh in this virgin territory, so thought of uh, in North America, um that what you do basically is transmit all kinds of diseases that kill off the natives because they have no they've built up no immunity to those kinds of things. Uh so it's it's mass slaughter or not, or purely by accident, and that's what um the war of the worlds is, also just neatly inverting. What if we were object of that? What if someone brought us a disease or an illness that we have no immunity to? And we've also been
3: living through that in the last two years, haven't we? Turning to uh, search engine results, it's interesting. A huge portion of them are about three male American authors, all born in 1920. And I want to talk about them a bit. And then I also want to talk to you about whether it's a coincidence that they share those characteristics. So they're Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Frank Herbert. Agrobiodiverse on Twitter asks, who is the greatest English language science fiction writer and why is it Isaac Asimov? So that's the the kind of the tone. I wanted to talk to you about um, why the ideas of these three men have proven so powerful and so long-lasting, I suppose.
4: Yeah, so I think the the shift um, comes from H.G. Wells and the English or British scientific romance, which is, you know, it, it develops in the 1890s and gets very kind of fixed quite quickly. And you can see Arthur C. Clarke actually is at, at the end of that tradition as well. He, he was someone who who's kind of directly influenced by uh, Wells. So there's kind of a continuity there. But what happens in the 1920s uh, is... Uh, a very specific set of circumstances in america uh, which which develop um these pulp magazines so it's Hugo Gernsback who is uh, a guy who publishes uh, he's an entrepreneur in radio technology so this is the beginning of people building their home radios and communicating with each other which is very big in America CB radio all that sort of stuff Uh, he, he develops all of these kind of pulp magazines around that and then he just starts adding fiction in but then realizes that all he can do is just is just reprint old H.G. Wells stories. Uh, So then he starts trying to commission um, new things to come through. And that's where science fiction is named. That's where it comes from. And in 1929, you get astounding science fiction, which is often considered to be the home of American engineer hard science fiction so this sort of extrapolative idea Uh, so it's very important that people um, writing in that have a kind of authority, training in science and that's certainly uh, what Asimov has, who is a chemist uh, and, I mean, Frank Herbert's mind was extraordinary, but he he was really interested in ecology and biology and science. Ray Bradbury, a bit more of a kind of fantasy um, uh, crossover figure, uh, softer science fiction. He was not so keen on um, hard, extrapolative uh, kind of science fiction. And in the 1930s, there is just simply a place for people like that to publish an awful lot of stuff and kind of grow up in public, really. Uh, and uh, it's very unusual usual community in that they have very active letters pages and uh, the, the letter writers themselves become writers so this is quite often how people kind of start is that they move into these uh, kind of areas uh, and then and, and another figure I would add who's who's probably more important than all of those three I would say controversially is Robert Heinlein uh, who was also you know trained uh, scientist and worked as an engineer uh, in um, in the war uh, for the navy, he'd been in the he'd been in the navy, um, and a standing science fiction's editor, John Campbell, was someone who was also trained in science and was very uh, strict about um, the rules of what 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 science fiction kind of could do. So I think there's a kind of whole cluster here that makes American science fiction in the 20s and 30s really specific, and that's where those key figures uh, emerge from.
3: Was it Heinlein who wrote Starship Troopers or, or So, Heinlein the thing did, that? right?
4: Yeah, that's right. Heinlein, so Robert Heinlein, um, was uh, really crucial in a way for uh, a post war shift, which was that he started out in magazines and, and pulp magazines and 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 wrote quite a lot of short stories. Um, but in the immediate post 1945 period, he was the first science fiction writer to kind of get a book deal uh, with a major mainstream publisher and that changes the whole nature of where science fiction is published in America it moves from magazines pulp magazines to um, paperbacks and, and that sort of mass selling of paperbacks and Heinlein was the first person really in this genre which was very low and very minor and considered you know not at all important He was making money out of this. He was making a very, very good living indeed out of this kind of stuff. And he also targeted young adult readers, as we would now call it, Uh, a whole series of books focused around uh, young protagonists and and so on. So he was very influential. He was also fabulously right wing uh, and um, Starship Troopers, which came out in 1959. The brilliant film version by Paul Verhoeven. I always recommend. Uh, it's so funny. Um, but that is a very divisive book because it kind of argues that America should be a militaristic society. Everyone should go through military training. You can't vote unless you've been Been in the army and done your service, you know that sort of thing, and you must relentlessly attack all alien life forms um, which are a threat to your dominance. You know, so it's a very kind of strong politically uh, from the right, and you get someone like Ray Bradbury, who's much more identified with a kind of softer, left, a liberal kind of approach. These sort of things writes very mournfully about the nuclear age. Uh, The Martian Chronicles is a is a wonderful book from 1950, which is like the opposite of Heinlein, really anti-militaristic, very, very sort of full of melancholy about imperialism and colonialism. Uh, The Martians are dying off, you know, as the Americans arrive on Mars. That sort of sense of of, of the politics of that. So you get the whole array there. And, And Frank Herbert's June coming in the 1960s is that major blockbuster which, again, is, is very in front of its time, really, thinking about ecology and precarious um, sand, desert kind of cultures. Uh, he was someone who was very interested in experimental farming and extreme conditions, and he imagined all of this sort of stuff on uh, the planets uh, of Arrakis, you know, this sort of sense of, uh, of a whole culture, but a desert culture I- inside that. So they're all very informed by science, but they, science doesn't give you a politics, Um, politics comes from how you how you work with science and technology so you get either a Heinlein or you
3: get um, uh, Bradbury Um, I wanted to talk to you about a few other authors that haven't come up on google searches but who I think might tell us something one of them who I think also falls into that uh, trend of writing about ecology and environment is Ursula Laguin who what were her sort of key ideas and concerns and influence I suppose
4: yeah, so finally we get to talk about a woman author. Amazing. Um, and um, Ursula Le Guin uh, is very important um, in uh, the emergence of a kind of much more uh, overtly feminist science fiction, which is not to say women weren't absent, were, were not around. You know, there they, they were women writing all the way through from the beginning of, of science fiction. The first, you know, most significant utopia is Margaret Cavendish going all the way back to, to the blazing world in the 17th century. Uh, and you do get women writers who write really good science fiction in the late 19th century alongside Wells. But Ursula Le Guin is a really significant figure in the 60s. Um, and I think her background is really interesting. So both of her parents were anthropologists uh, and uh, she was brought up in a, in, in a very kind of rich university context where she was exposed to lots of really interesting ideas. And so her fiction is quite often uh, driven by what it means to encounter alien cultures, what it means to encounter the other and her view is not one of um search and destroy all everything that is different from you but what would it be like how would you try and deal with a completely um alien culture um so you know one of the, her key books uh is the left hand of darkness and uh, she's she's very interested in 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 exploring kind of alternate um, universes what, what does it mean when you encounter someone who can change gender um, at, at different points in their life um, what would that do to your whole kind of system of, of belief and thought it completely throws the the narrator in quite interesting ways so she's very interested in the anthropology of that sort of stuff and she's also quite early on um i mean the the the, the understanding of of Ecology and the damage being done to uh, the ecologies of, of fragile ecologies of the Earth was beginning to emerge in the 1960s. But this is all kind of very early kind of stuff. But but she was very interested in that. So so maybe native cultures that you encounter or have a different relationship to nature it's not seen as a resource uh to be used and consumed but that you live with in 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 totally different ways and that's been hugely influential too so she's a kind of very uh, again soft science fiction liberal end Um, interested in intellectual um, social ideas, sociology and anthropology, Uh, the kind of stuff that, say, Asimov uh, or Heinen are less interested in, although they have many things to say about it. Uh, Her focus is not on hard technology necessarily, but on uh, these ideas
3: of encounter, I think. So she's crucial. Another figure is Stanisław Lem, who um, is Polish, I believe. Um, What were his concerns and ideas And what do they tell us about that point, I suppose, in European and international history?
4: Yeah, it's so important to, and I hope we can say more about this uh, towards the end, but it's so important to have a kind of international or multinational perspective for for science fiction. Um, So we're beginning to understand that, that, um, although we've had this endless argument about is H.G. Wells the father of science fiction, actually there are lots of traditions that are emerging at around about the same time in many different kind of um, nations. Uh, And so there is a kind of, Tradition in Russian writing and Soviet uh, Union writing, which of course is very interested in utopia. In fact, the Bolsheviks who, who who drove the revolution wrote science fiction. They wrote utopian kind of science fiction. Some of them quite explicitly, um, uh, and you know were very interested in in the politics of of, of that, of projecting futures. They were very interested in futurism. Those that, those sorts of ideas. By the time you get to someone like Stanislav Lem who is writing uh, in what was then a satellite communist state um so part of the part of the whole uh, Soviet Union alliance in in the east uh during the Cold War um he's got a slightly different relationship to uh science fiction so the virtue of it is that it can be allegorical that is you can write about the state that you're in without directly criticising the state because as soon as you do, your work gets suppressed. So science fiction becomes a very kind of powerful device or a genre in which you can displace your criticism and, and, and uh, begin to kind of target some concerns. So I, th- I think he's, he's, he's important for that. He's very interested in science and technology um, but also has this sort of softer edge. So um, if you read Solaris, uh, which has been filmed twice, both times brilliantly but very differently um, that's about a bunch of scientists who are sent to a planet uh, to try and communicate with what seems to be a planetary consciousness uh, and it's communicating in a completely different way from from language uh, it kind of extracts your worst memory from your mind and, and kind of beams it back at you and and is there any possibility of communicating with this absolute other uh, so that's a really interesting crucial kind of story uh, and there are many um figures like lem who kind of right on the edge of censorship um and of being suppressed by um by communist party state who who don't like this stuff they don't they don't want this uh, kind of material they want happy tractor driver kind of realist material um so that they're, they're kind of treated with suspicion on the edge uh, of this, and it makes their work really intriguing and 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 you have to interpret quite hard uh, what it is that they might be getting at so that 's true also of say this Drugatsky brothers who wrote roadside picnic um which became st- Joker, uh, the film by Tarkovsky. Uh, and it's a very influential story because it's about alien technology that no one understands, uh, that you sort of pick up and it either does wondrous things to you or it kills you or it mutates you and no one quite understands uh, what it is. But that was a book that was suppressed uh, as somehow, in some way, critical. We're not sure how, but we would like to um, ban and censor this anyway. So that's sense of, uh, of how you might use science fiction again in a sort of political context um as a sort of way of 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 displacing
3: criticism is very important uh spaghetti tree on twitter uh wants to know about the impacts of the early cold war in that transitional period where science began to truly influence literature is there something about the cold war that we can say more generally about science fiction and, and and history
4: yeah that is a really good question and i do think um You know, I I, so I've written a history of science fiction, which I I hinge around 1945, because I think 1945 is an absolutely crucial moment. Uh, That's when we get, you know, the atom bomb being used. That is the first super weapon that's been imagined for so many decades by science fiction actually realised. H.G. Wells predicted an atom bomb uh, in 1914. And he thought it would emerge around about 1945. So that's kind of a fairly amazing kind of sense of of, of what they were understanding about, you know, the, the projection into the future. You can release this extraordinary energy. But what that, of course, produced was um, these, these absolutely implacably opposed blocks between West and East, um, the Soviet Union and its communist uh, allies versus America and its capitalist allies. Um, and you get lots of science fiction, which is uh, either, you know, utterly dystopian. So imagining nuclear um, meltdowns of various kinds or survival of nuclear catastrophe in various kinds of ways. Um Uh, but you also get um, a a sort of drive to try and think beyond these political divisions. That's actually what... Arthur C. Clarke's most transcendent work is about is he's always saying we need to leave behind human division uh, and these political kind of shifts and it's only science it's only space travel moving outwards um, that can allow us to transcend this which is why his visions are so sort of ecstatic you know the end of 2001 whatever the hell that means uh, is a sort of vision of transcendence of these kinds of um, political moments So, so the Cold War is really really very important and you get someone like um, uh, Robert Heinlein again, who who works out the kind of logic of um, mutually assured destruction. That is, you know, we've got a bomb. If you set yours off, we'll set ours off. Everyone, everything ends. So it's a kind of, you know, a stalemate. He works out that logic in the middle of the Second World War. You know, that's a sense of of, of right before. Uh, all the politicians have got there. Uh, and an American writer like Judith Merrill um, takes a very different view of this. So, you know, what's the effect of this on mothers, on motherhood? Uh, what if you produce your mutant children? What's going to happen about that? Um, Octavia Butler, another really important writer uh, emerging in the 1970s, is sort of saying that humanity is is kind of doomed with this a kind of violence and, and 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 constant drive to domination so we actually need to actively embrace the alien other and become something else become move beyond our division and that is also i mean hers is driven by Um, a question around race she was one of the earliest um, black women science fiction writers but it's also clearly a Cold War logic as well of of let's just move beyond this kind of division and you get really weird things uh, happening so that in um, 1980s, some some listeners might remember that Ronald Reagan had this whole project called Star Wars, which was, you know, to kind of put um, a defence system in space. That was written for him by a group of science fiction writers. Robert Heinlein, Greg Baer uh, were heavily involved in that. They wrote a report out of their science fiction, which then became... Government policy, you know, it's extraordinary the influence that those science fiction writers had. They were all very politically motivated to help the Republican uh, Party and to, uh, in a sense, extend the Cold War into space itself. Um, and and so, you know, this vision perhaps didn't
3: work because it was science fiction. But nevertheless, it got billions of dollars. It's amazing. Uh, that leads nicely, actually, talking about the ideas in which science fiction has influenced reality. N.P. Ryan on Twitter uh, asks, is it right to say that Churchill's initial fear that Londoners wouldn't come back out of underground stations if allowed to shelter from bombs in them came from the time machine, the H.G. Wells story? Do you know <laughs> whether that's true
4: or not? I, don't, I, can't, I can't answer whether it's specifically true or not, but I think there is a, that was certainly the, the view, was that if people were... Uh, allowed to go into the underground system and um, then they would never come out, and the kind of the economy would would sort of collapse. So there was a genuine kind of fear about that. There is a sort of imagination of science fiction which is kind of bubbling around, uh, which has these visions of of underground living, which become even stronger in the Cold War. So bunker living and this idea of of, of we all uh, ending up in bunkers. There's a great novel by Philip K. Dick, the 1950s American. Uh, writer called The Penultimate Truth, which is where humanity is has basically been for decades living in bunkers underground, watching news feeds of robots fighting a war on the surface, and they discover that the robots are just simply making films uh, and that there has been no war for, for, for decades. And they've all been tricked into this kind of system by artificial intelligences. So, you know, there is a, a sense of a, of, of a bunker kind of um, imagination to science fiction. So maybe Churchill was picking up on that. He did read absolutely everything.
3: We should return to the idea that you mentioned earlier about other traditions or other voices that haven't been given perhaps the recognition that they might otherwise deserve, who should we champion? who should we highlight that we haven't already talked about in this conversation?
4: yeah, so I mean I think there are many um it's a golden age right now it's a golden age of science fiction really there's so many so much extraordinary work, but I think what's extraordinary about it is this explosion across the whole globe, so it's now impossible for um you know someone like me to sit here and say, "I've read you know everything in science fiction. you might have been able to do that maybe in nineteen 19- 50 <laughs> uh, and and it's becoming very difficult but now it's simply impossible and we need kind of experts who um, there's a whole uh, Indian kind of science fiction world uh, there's a whole um, uh, African science fiction lots of different kind of countries producing lots of different kinds of work um, I've just been reading The Old Drift by Namwali Serpel, which won um, the best science fiction novel Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2020, and that's set in Zambia. And you just think, is this a science fiction novel? And it slowly, carefully does take you into a science fictional world in a really clever, ingenious kind of way. And it feels very uh, significant, vital, important kind of work that's that's being done. There's a thing called Gulf Futurism, which is uh, a kind of science fiction that's emerging from the Middle East. So. Frankenstein in Baghdad, uh amazing um book by Ahmed Sadawi, uh which reimagines the the monster in the middle of um the, the the Iraq war. Uh this is a monster that put together from the body parts of people who've been blown up in the explosive Um, in explosions Uh, and it kind of enacts the revenge of all the people who've been killed it feels like a completely new brilliant um, uh, world of invention so there's loads of stuff that's going on And um, if people are able to get to to London in October, there is a whole massive exhibition called Science Fiction uh, at the Science Museum, which is trying to explore these ideas. I was involved in the development of that over the last five years, and they've been really committed to this idea of a a global vision. Um, So there's a a quick way of doing that. It's going to be
3: a great exhibition. Thank you so much. I wanted to end with just a few quick questions um, we've had. LDOP Exeter asks, what sci-fi tropes have we achieved? And they suggest <laughs> sliding doors, data pads, medical scans. And what have we missed? Hoverboard, Soylent Green. I mean, some of them, I'd argue, it's a good thing we've missed. Is, <laughs> is, is there something we can say about the shape that history has taken compared to the shape that science fiction offered? Or is that too too impossible?
4: Yeah, I mean I think it's a really good question. It's a perennial question as well. So should you measure science fiction by, you know, what it accurately predicts? Uh and there is a there's a there's a famous book and phrase which is, you know, uh, where's my jetboard dude or whatever it was called, you know, that that sense of where's my where, where is all of this promise, you know, of of this technology it hasn't arrived. Uh, so these but they're sometimes called retro futures, this idea that you know back in the fifties everything you know we, we didn't need food anymore, we'd just have a pill and it would be great, uh or there'd be no work, you know labor would be kind of ended, and we'd all just lie around in hammocks uh, and uh, order around robots uh, and that hasn't happened uh, but on the other hand, I think it's much more interesting to look at how certain kind of imagination and 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 Uh, explorations of technology have slowly kind of arrived. So many people say that the, um, the mobile phone in America has this very different flip kind of device doesn't it so you kind of often open it out and that's all because of star trek so you know it needed to be like the communicators in 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 star trek um if you um read uh, arthur c Clarke on uh the future of computing in the 1960s so he'd already predicted satellites and then he said 1960s well i think we're gonna basically in the future have uh, a handheld kind of device a computer uh where you can watch television you can communicate with your friends uh it would be you know but by vision and sound, you wouldn't need to worry about telephones anymore. Uh, And and he's describing, and also describing the shape when you see him on TV in the 60s of an iPad. And it's kind of fairly extraordinary that you can do that. People sometimes go to um, the kind of work of, say, um, James Cameron, a filmmaker, director who did Avatar, but also Steven Spielberg, um, who in his science fictions, kind of he hires Futurologists, in order to try and just kind of tilt things um, slightly into the future, so you know their films are predicting. Well, they they create new technology. That's so why James Cameron takes so long to produce a film is he has to invent a camera to film it. Um, but in Spielberg's case, um, you know, eye iris recognition, all that sort of stuff is is going on in his his kind of films, and you know these these personal ads which kind of pick up your. Um, as you walk along the street they sort of pick up your um, signature uh, and uh, direct personal ads at you we've all been freaked out by what Instagram can do to you when it can really predict your desires in, in quite extraordinary ways so that sort of sense of that artificial intelligence has obviously has been a kind of key idea and people are are we on the edge of what's called the technological singularity which is where Machines become conscious, Um, even just a couple of months ago, um, someone in Google said, wait a minute, I think this I think my computer's just got (laughs) just got sentient Uh, and he was promptly moved from his job. But actually, that idea of, of we're right on the edge of this kind of development is 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 partly due to science fiction partly due to science fiction being so fluid now with advanced technology companies startup companies you know tech uh, kind of stuff we all look to Elon Musk who's doing research into telepathy effectively uh and also you know extended life research which is massive in the silicon valley um you know will walt disney's head that's been frozen allegedly uh be reanimated um his family repeatedly deny that his head is frozen by the way uh and um you know that sort of culture of 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 can we escape the bounds of the human itself? It feels very kind of vibrant, and that 's for me why science fiction is uh, so vital now is there 's a sense of all the technology is accelerating. We're in the middle of a revolution, a digital revolution. We don't quite know where it's going. We can do these extraordinary things now with, with gene editing. You know, do, do we have enough kind of moral, ethical um, capacities to control that? And it's science fiction that imagines both good versions and bad versions of, of what might come out of that.
3: And understanding the history of science fiction and how it's shaped our understanding of reality in the past can help us make sense of where we might be going in the future.
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, and, and I think that's both, you know, both hard in the sense of technology and, and science, but also soft in the in the sense of what what are the political consequences of this kind of thing. So, you know, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, uh, written as an attack on uh, conservative Reagan um, world in the 1980s, suddenly gets this major new boost, um, not just from shifting um, media, so becoming a t v streamed series, but also because of a political context in which abortion is suddenly you know shifted in in the states, and all of the protests pick up on the imaginary of of um of of handmaid's tale, so you get you know the handmaidens uh, who arrive at protests and so on so it's very powerful and that that kind of sense of she could see the kind of certain consequences of this, and isn't it freaky that a certain version of it has Started to emerge, um, suggests the power of the imagination to project kind of forward and to warn, but also to em- embrace and celebrate as well as question or just say there's, it's completely unpredictable what's going to happen. Um, it's a great book by Charles Stross called Accelerando, uh, which is about, um, which is crazy because it's just a technolo- technological singularity happens uh, but then it's completely unpredictable you know and um, you, you can decide if you want to put your consciousness into a flock of birds for a while if you like and and things get crazier and crazier and weirder and weirder because it's no longer in our control you know that's a sense of technology just uh producing itself and doing very weird and strange things so you know there's there's lots of ways of imagining the future which are really powerful still
0: That was Roger Luckhurst. The exhibition that Roger mentioned, Science Fiction, Voyage to the Edge of Imagination, is running at the Science Museum in London until the 4th of May, 2023. To find out more, visit sciencemuseum.org.uk. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.